So Psalm 109. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labour. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse, may it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing, may it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment, it entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake, out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. Uh, and the next reading is Hebrews 5 verse 7. So Hebrews 5 verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission.
Let's pray. Well, Father, we do ask you, please, that you might help us uh, particularly this morning, that you might, by your Spirit, work through me, move amongst us, give us clarity of mind, uh, but help us with reverent submission, um, bow before the truth of your word, and let it, please, shape and change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are some beautiful psalms. This one's not one of them. You know, I mean, there's some, there's some beautiful psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A psalm we looked at a couple of weeks ago. There is the Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? They're the kind of statements you can stick on your on the poster with the great mountain things and the ocean behind it and the fluffy kitten and you can, you can have it in your room and you just you love it, it's beautiful. But then there's Psalm 109. It is a disturbing psalm. Who was not disturbed reading the sense of the expression that was given through that psalm? Um, it's called an imprecatory psalm. Now, you can forget that word, but uh, just alert you to this. There are half a dozen psalms that are called imprecatory psalms, and we have a word for them from 2,000 years of Christian thinking about the Bible because the word just means curse. Psalms are about cursing, calling down judgment. And there's a word for it because it's been so well thought about and reflected on and people are aware of it. It's uh, one of these half a dozen psalms. Included in that is the Psalm 137 that has a very chilling statement at the very end of that psalm about judgment upon infants. And it's, it is disturbing and it's concerning. You find it difficult. There's Psalm 69 that's almost an identical pattern to Psalm 109, the psalm that we'll be looking at. And there's, it's worth noting these things because we'll come back to them. But Psalm 109 is extended. It's the mother of all of these judgment psalms, if you like. It's the one that's uh, longer in its expression. It's more explicit. It's stronger. May their sin be counted against them. May their children be without a father. Serious and very difficult words to hear. It is tempting, of course, to dismiss them as somehow sub-Christian. This is not a Christian psalm. This is somehow less than what we ought to pursue. Except the New Testament won't let you do that. Chase this up later, but Romans chapter 11, verse 9 to 11, quotes uh, Psalm 69 and the curse section out of Psalm 69, which is almost identical to the section out of Psalm 109, and quotes it affirming of it. Quotes it affirming that this is an appropriate thing to express. So we are left with a challenge. What do we do with it? Now, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it many times again over the years, but uh, um, it's the hardest parts of the Bible that are the best parts to work at. You know, if you just go to the pretty parts, you'll be affirmed and you'll be reinforced. If you leave behind the hard parts, you will continue in the way you've always thought and never be challenged. Because the reason the parts of the Bible that are hard are hard is because God's view on life and the reality and my view on life don't align. If I had God's perspective and looked at all the Psalms and all Psalm 109 and all the words of God, then I would agree with I'd see the wisdom and the appropriateness of these things. That I find them difficult is in part, not entirely, we'll try to come to this complexity in a moment, is in part because I'm not aligned with God. There's a tussle between the two of us. And who's going to win that tussle? 
Far better that I learn to see the world as God does see it in all his wisdom. And so being out of sync with Psalm 109, that's the place to work. That's the very place to work. And so we've chosen to do this psalm. I think they felt, oh, let's throw it to Herdy and see what he can do with it. So, um, but I'm very pleased to be able to be wrestling with this with you. Let me say at the outset too, that a deep reflection on this psalm will be good for the soul. It will be good for us. It'll be good for our spiritual health, our maturity as humans, as Christians, as God's people, and it will actually help us understand the gospel. So don't dismiss it. Let's wrestle with it. Let me take you quickly through some of the content and uh, move off from that into some applications for us. So Psalm 109, notice it's got a couple of, there's probably four or five sections that flow through the psalm. The first part, verse 1 to verse 5, so if you've got your Bibles chased through there, the first part is David, it's a psalm of David, expressing the grief and hurt and a kind of anger that he feels towards people who are wicked, verse 2, and deceitful, who have opened their mouths against him. They've done it with words of hatred and surrounded David, and they've attacked him without cause. This is unjust. He, verse 4, has expressed friendship. Verse 5, he's given friendship and good, but what he's got in return has been evil, has been hostility, betrayal, hatred. And so it's caused, clearly, a reaction in David. And from verse 6 down to verse 15, he expresses his desire that God might bring judgment upon them. And here is where the words are hard to hear. You know, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Okay. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. There is a kind of prayer that you can exercise that is so insincere and so full of hypocrisy that itself will be a judgment against you. But look at verse 8, may his days be few. Verse 9, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. Is this appropriate as an expression of God's people upon others? May no one extend kindness to him, verse 12, or take pity on his fatherless children. May verse 14, the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord. Wow, this is heavy. Did you feel the heaviness of it? Do you find the disturbance? Here's the thing. Here's one of the things. Who has not ever felt this way themselves? Who has not ever felt the hurt and then anger at being treated unjustly? Who has not, not ever sought to be kind and good and friendly to others and found in return all you've got is evil and hostility? Who, who hasn't had a child bullied at school by a kid who's so cool and so aloof and so superior with parents who laugh it all off and not themselves wanted that child and parents to suffer the same fate? Who has not ever had that? I know you have. Who, is, who hasn't been the parent on the sideline at sport, yelling uh, where you've seen, you know, that parent who is kind of that one who runs up and down the sideline, yelling abuse at the kids, every kid except their own kid, and yelling at the ref? Who has not wanted them to trip over a garbage bin and have something, you know, who has not wanted to be that? And say, so, yeah, they, you, you laugh because you've been there. I mean, I never have, but you have. 
Who has never cheered in the movies when finally the the group of uh, two cool for school um, gossips and abusers finally get their return at the end? Who has not cheered for that? I mean, that's how the whole way movies operate. We've all been where David's been. I mean, more seriously, who hasn't watched the horror of the way businesses treat the weak and the vulnerable and not wanted them to get punished? Who has not watched through the earlier part of this year with the rampant bushfires, the horror of all of that, and watched that a young man has been part of lighting those fires and not wanted some kind of punishment to come? Yes? That their sins not be blotted out. Three young women in the early stage of the pandemic um, deliberately lie about where they've been and take a route into Queensland, bringing the pandemic into Queensland. Who didn't want them to have some punishment and judgment? We've all been there. Even the love is love people. All you need is love. You know the crowd that's around at the moment who seems to suggest that it's all about being positive and warm and live and let live. Even they have their boundaries the point at which they bring shame and hostility to others who are not towing the line. Everybody has been there. Be very careful not to judge David. So here's where I want to take us this morning. I want to offer three applications. I want to deal with the content of the psalm, what it teaches us with three points to raise. Before I do that, I want to offer a caution. Uh, So let's work our way through this. Start with the caution. Uh, Caution is this. This psalm is not teaching us a simple pattern on how you pray about people who have offended you. This is not permission for each of us to start forming curse prayers. Now, why is that the case? Well, because of the way it's used in the New Testament. There's something unique going on in this psalm that needs to be borne in mind. Let me show you this. It's a bit of an exploration for us. Let's do some work. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 109, is quoted in the New Testament. And let me take you through the quote that happens. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 20. So come with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, It's a a direct quote. Um, Verse 24, Peter says, It is written in the book of Psalms... And then he quotes two psalms, two of the curse psalms, the imprecatory psalms. The first one there is a quote from Psalm 69, and the second one is a quote from Psalm 109. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and then, our psalm, may another take his place of leadership. Now here's the thing, when you dig into the context of Acts chapter 1, who is he talking about? Who is he saying this psalm references? Do you remember the context? Who is it referring to? Judas. It's Judas. And so what you have here is the apostles recognising that actually, get this, Psalm 109, written a thousand years earlier, was a prophecy about Judas and his attitude towards the anointed one. You said, let me show you the other place. There's a number of other places where Psalm 109 is alluded to. Come with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. So this is not a direct quote, 
but it's a clear allusion that's confirmed when you look at the way Psalm 69 is used. But if you look there at Matthew 27, uh, verse uh, 38, two rebels were crucified with Jesus. We're now at the crucifixion. Jesus is hanging on the cross, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head at him. Now you come back to Psalm 109 and you look with me at verse 25. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads at me. Now you know by the companion psalm, Psalm 69, that some, those two psalms together are used to actually see, give an insight into the person of Jesus. That is to say, these psalms are regarded as prophecies centuries earlier of the coming of the great anointed one and the activity of Judas against him. David was the anointed one in the Old Testament. He was the great Psalm 2 king, the one that the Lord anointed and set up as his king, that the way you respond to David is the way you respond to God. And so David's prayer in Psalm 109, is not just of a personal affront and upset. It's not just that someone pulled in in the road in front of him without blinkering and he was angry about it. No, no, no. This person's response to David was of a different order. It expressed a reaction against the God who had anointed David. And it was anticipating King Jesus, anointed Jesus, and Judas's reaction against him. This is not just Joe Christian who's been upset. There is something unique and profound and special about this particular prayer. So take care, it is not a simple affirmation of here's how you pray. How are we to pray? When we're hurt, when we've been offended. Well, Jesus gives us the teaching on it. He explicitly says, here's how you pray. Forgive as you've been forgiven. The Lord's Prayer. And he models it for us on the cross. Father, forgive them, he says. And Paul the Apostle picks this up in Romans chapter 12. Chase it up later, verse 7 to 21, where he says, no, no, you don't return evil for evil. You return good for evil. You pray for your enemies and look for their good. It's a very different tone coming to the New Testament around the way me as a Christian relates to those who offend and hurt and grieve me. Psalm 109 is not a model for how you pray in its every detail. There's something quite unique and important in the setting within which it sits. But let me give you the three things that I think we do learn from it. The first one is this, honesty, reality. It's not a model in every respect. If you get hurt, you do not call down curses, you bless in return. That's the New Testament model. But it is a lesson that the God that we know, the God who, is, who comes to us in Jesus, the God who, who is the rock, is strong enough to cope with the full range of human emotion. He's the God who, is, who has made us with emotions, who, who has made us with the full range of those emotions. And, and it's a lesson that 
when you live life as God's person in a fallen, broken world, you will have these whole range of emotions triggered, both positive and negative emotions, and that's reality. And Psalm 109 and the other Psalms like this, the lament Psalms, the curse Psalms, they teach you that this is part and parcel of being a human in God's world. You see, the Psalms are nothing except that they're full on about honesty, honest emotion, they're raw, they're real. This is a, this is a song of a man deeply in touch with exactly how he feels and not afraid to express it. He's hurting, he's angry. He's feeling betrayed. He's been a friend, but he's only got hostility. He's feeling all of that and he's not hiding that. You know, I say all of this because there have been a couple of forces through the Christian world over many years that have stifled our sense of permission to be fully human. There's kind of like the British stiff upper lip thing that um, almost gave the impression that the more mature person is the one who doesn't feel these things, is above these things. But there's also a kind of a spirituality that's flowed through Christianity in the last couple of decades, which is a kind of... a, a into emotions, it's very committed to being emotional, but it's very committed to only being into the positive emotions, the so-called positive emotions. And it's the kind of spirituality that paints the picture of the mature Christian as someone who is always and only positive and upbeat and secure and confident and happy and inspired and inspiring. That you're up. And you're always up. And, that's, and don't talk negatives. Don't embrace negatives. In fact, I had a quote just this week from a, a teacher in this kind of context where you ought not speak about the things of doubt and hostility and anger. You ought not pursue these negative emotions because they'll destroy your spiritual walk. The problem with all of that is Psalm 109. Have a look, in fact, at Psalm 73. Turn up with me to Psalm 73. Look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. That is, I'd almost given up the faith. I was such an, in, in a precarious state. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? Because I envied. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here is the psalmist ready to own the full range of his emotions. I was, I was doubting. God, I almost gave up. I was envious. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 talks about being in such despair that he despairs even of life itself. This is the apostle. The, the, the Bible gives no sense that the fully mature Christian is someone who has only certain emotions and not others. We are to express the reality of who we are. Now, what about self-control? You might ask, surely self-control is important. It's a gift of the Spirit. Yes, absolutely. But see, self-control is exercised not in crushing your emotions, but in learning when and where to express them. You know, it's, it's the child, it's the immature child who has no filters, who has something happen to them, they feel, and so they explode, they express. Whereas the adult feels, has something, feels the hostility, the anger, the envy, the doubt, 
feels it, embraces the reality of that honesty, but chooses where to express it. Has the self-control to know whether I reflect this back, whether I reflect it only to my God and process with him. Who works out when and where to express these emotions. Brothers and sisters, this is liberating. It's actually hugely encouraging of your humanity. We live in this world and it's good for the soul to get beyond a superficial expression of what a human is, to understand the full range of our emotions, to appreciate it's important if I want a deep spiritual walk with the living God, that he encourages me to own the fact that I have envy. I am angry. I'm deeply disappointed. I feel hostility. Um, I have a sense of grief that I can't let go of. It's liberating to know that the Bible encourages you to own those things. You won't be any good to the people around you if you deny them, suppress them. You won't be any good to the people around you if you just let them come out wherever you feel them either. So you need to learn to filter and you need to learn to process. Now I say this into a group of people where I know numbers of you are carrying hurts and anger Anger that's deep towards parents, towards spouse, towards God. You, you, feel, you, you don't know what to do with it. And the psalmist gives you the encouragement to know there's no good pretending you don't have them. God is not shocked or surprised that you have them. Emotions are for feeling. And one of the first steps in processing and dealing with them in a healthy way is feeling them. Now, not luxuriating in them, but feeling them, processing them. And if you chase through the Psalms, you'll see the way they process them. As they come back to God and they gain the perspective of who he is, the world we're in, and put the pieces back into place and move through to the ability to again entrust ourselves to him. You see, there's the first thing I want to draw your attention to from Psalm 109. It teaches us not as a model how to pray in terms of calling down curses, but what it shows us is the raw honesty that God encourages. The reality that we're to have with positive and negative emotions. Oh, just one last thing. You cannot survive with the constant up that some spiritual world kind of encourages you to have. It will burn you out. You need to face the ups and downs and the reality, and God encourages you to do that. Let me take you through the second application i think that comes from psalm 109 we need a world where there is judgment and we need to be conscious that judgment is alien but important you know we've been drawn again into a superficial christian experience where we've almost got this very simplistic notion potentially you, you might reflect on whether this is where you're at but it's potentially the case that you were left with a notion that God is love and only love God is love and all love and everything will be wonderful for everybody no Psalm 109 draws attention to the fact that there comes a point where David, as the anointed king of Israel, 
representing God, said enough is enough. It is now time not for mercy, but for judgment and justice. It is God's alien work, but it is a work that he will do and needs to be done, and this person deserves it. Look with me at Psalm 109, look at verse 15 and 16, and you'll get a sense of the horror of what David is dealing with. Look at verse 15. May their sins always remain before the Lord, may he, um, that he may blot out their name from the earth. Why? Verse 16. Because he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. This was a ruthless and cold man. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back to him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as a garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. This is not just the simplistic overflow of uh, an accident. This is the deep consequence of a culture, of a character that is consumed with cursing which I would suggest plays out in his family life, where children and children are raised into that same pattern. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a judgment that is necessary. You know, we've been shaped profoundly by the Christian message, wonderfully. We've been shaped profoundly by the Christian message, wonderfully, that God is a God of grace. God is a God who desires to blot out our transgressions. And if you find yourself reading this kind of going, oh, it just grates, then that's good. There's something good. That it ought, you ought never be simply comfortable with it. But we have tended to shift into a place where we think we're owed grace. We've, we've appreciated the richness and wonder of God's grace, but we've shifted into a place where we have tended to imagine we're owed that grace. It's God's job to give grace. No, no, no. There are two truths about God, among many. There are two big truths about God that sit side by side. He is a God of kindness and a God of severity. Have a look at Romans chapter 11. It's worth flipping this one up. Romans chapter 11. Paul, in the context of talking about um, God grafting some people in and judging others and cutting them off, has this to say in verse 22 of chapter 11, Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to you who fell, to those who fell, but kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. God is God, not a God to presume on. God's patience is not unlimited. God's love is not without discernment. There is a point where Paul says, if you presume on God's grace, you will be lost. Because God is kind and God is stern. He is loving and holy. These two truths are bound together. Do not presume on this God. 
You know, part of our problem with the psalm, and I say it's only part of our problem because, you know, there's a Christian instinct for grace, love and mercy that we find it's difficult to read such judgment expressions and that's appropriate. But there can be mixed in with that a struggle that we have with that expression because we've become, I don't know how else to say this, squeamish, sentimentalised, where... Everything should be nice and only nice. We're suburban. And being suburban, we are not well positioned to make sense of the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, and the fact that judgment must occur. You imagine a world where no one is punished, where there is no judgment. Imagine a world where John Lennon is right. And there's no heaven above us and no hell below. Imagine that world. It can sound beautiful and wonderful until you think it through. Imagine a world where the rich can oppress the poor and die happy in their beds. And there'd be no accounting for that. Imagine a world where the abusive man can crush his wife and his kids and then leave them and marry a new model and live a happy life through to his death and end happy, leaving behind the wreckage of a wife and a child crushed by his abusiveness, but him die happy with no judgment at the end. Imagine that world. Imagine a world where a corporation can use whole people groups in third world communities effectively building them into slavery and sucking their community dry for the sake of building their own profits. And yet the, the leadership of that corporation live happy and wonderful lives, die with great wealth, in great happiness, and there's no judgment. Imagine that world. That is not a better world. It's a world where evil prospers. It's a world that says it doesn't actually matter what you do, how you live your life. If you can get away with it, power wins. If there's no heaven and no hell, we are in a place where what you do doesn't matter and who you are doesn't matter. You end up not mattering because you're not held account as a moral agent who's an adult. There is a man called, there is a man called Miroslav Volf who lived through the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail on that in a moment to give you a sense of this, but he said this, and it's quite a complex quote, but it's worth listening to. He said, It takes the quiet of the suburb for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence is the result of believing in a God who refuses to judge. Now, reflect on this. He says the idea that getting rid of a God who judges will actually produce a non-violent world and a world of great peace, he says that idea only, only gets established in suburbs, not in the Balkans. Why? Because he says this, what do you say to the man who arrives back to his village only to find that the local dominant ethnic group has come through and slaughtered everybody. And this is literally what happened. Villages torn down, houses burnt, property destroyed. Every man, neck, throats cut. Every woman, old and young, raped and then killed. Now, what do you say to a young man who returns to see that 
and is burning with a desire to bring justice and vengeance, to take up the gum and attack back. What do you say to him to bring peace? If there's no heaven and hell, no judgment, you've got nothing to say. But Wolf says the key to peace and forgiveness is that God will fix it one day. There will be judgment so that you don't have to take it into your own hands and you can give to evil forgiveness and grace. That's what produces peace and awareness that judgment will be done. You see, the world is not a better place when we rid it of the thought of justice and judgment. Hell, it's been said, is testimony to the dignity of humanity. It's the, it shows that God takes us seriously and evil will not prosper. Justice will be done. You know, partly we struggle because we've been removed from seeing true horror. We live in the suburbs. God will judge and it will cost and it must cost for judgment to be just. It will be the case that a man's children will be left without a father for justice to be truly done. There is something that's difficult in this psalm, but there's something profoundly important in it. The need for judgment. Everything won't just be okay. I want to keep saying this to us. There is a day coming. It needs to be the case that God will hold humanity to account. And a world that gets rid of that notion will not be a better world. You know, in the New Testament era, there were people saying, where is this coming? They were dismissing the notion of a day when God would set things right. And Peter, in 2 Peter 3, has to say, um, a day is like a, a thousand years in, in God's sight. Uh, he's not slow in keeping his promises, as some consider slowness. Uh, that There will be a day when he does come, and judgment will be done. And so he says, how do you live in light of that? With great care. Soberly. Seriously. Take care to continue to trust in the Lord Jesus because there is no hope apart from him. I'll come to that in a moment. Psalm 109 helps us be sober and careful. Never presume on the grace of God. And it helps us preach more urgently and take care with each other to remember the goodness and the severity of God that we might warn one another to not slide and slip so the first lesson is to be honest with God. Bring it all. The second is that judgment is important. It's God's alien work and one we ought to always find some sense of uncomfortableness about, but it's important and necessary and good. Third thing, in the midst of this, is there a way to grace? You see, there's a deeper complexity in the psalm. I think this is partly what I'm hearing people feel as well, and I understand it entirely. There's a reaction that people are having uh, towards David, particularly being the one who says these things. Now, why should it be disturbing that David is the one saying of someone that their sins should be counted against them? Why is that particularly disturbing, that David's saying that? Because of Psalm 51. 
the psalm we so wonderfully went through last week. A psalm that actually brings to the fore the horror of David's sin. That not only did he betray his wife and commit adultery, but then he arranged the murder of the husband to hide it and he lied and he was, it was a dreadful scene. It was as bad as it could be because his sin wasn't just against, but it was also against God. How come he can be the one who says, don't, don't forgive his sins, but forgive mine? You know, don't make sure you count his sins against him, but don't count them against mine. Well, the key is there in verse 20. Come to Psalm 109. Because as the psalm moves through and comes to its conclusion, David then reflects on himself. Verse 21. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. Now there's the answer, do you see it? Why is one person worthy of having their sins counted against them and another not? Or that's probably, how is another in a position where their sins are not counted against them? There's no worth in this, but how is it the case that one and not the other? Well, it's there in verse 21. Help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. There is a profoundly different attitude that David brings to God than the one that he's condemning. And it's the difference between someone who looks to themselves for their standing before God and someone who looks to God for their standing before God. Let me illustrate this and uh, see if I can then draw out what I'm talking about here to finish. An illustration that actually is quite disturbing in its own right and I know that as I say it, it will actually land in some of your lives in a very vivid way because you've been through this very experience and I'm sorry to trigger you in this way, but um, I think it's important to deal with these things. Imagine this situation. Husband and wife, married for many years, have a couple of kids. He uh, takes on a job in the last few years that means he's overseas quite a bit and uh, has extended periods of time overseas with work. She, through a various set of circumstances, is going through text messages and stumbles upon the fact that he has a series of text messages to a woman overseas. And what emerges is that he's been having an affair this whole time with someone else. She confronts him with the truth of this and he acknowledges that it's true. She kicks him out. He comes back apologetic. I'm sorry. Here's a question. Does she have to have him back? Does she have, as a Christian, should she have him back? Now, I'm not going to ask you to answer that question. I'm going to give you what I think the Bible says. I think the Bible is quite clear she does not have to have him back. He has so betrayed the relationship, he's broken the marriage covenant that it's finished and it's appropriate to end there. Now, she ought to forgive him, but with a kind of forgiveness that doesn't lead to full restoration of the marriage relationship. That's not a necessary consequence of that kind of forgiveness. But she's not... Now, he comes back and says sorry and really means it. Does she have to receive him because his apology is so sincere? He comes every day with flowers. Does she have to receive him back? No, because here's the deal. There is nothing that he can do that takes away the crime that he has committed. And there's nothing that he can do that can make him worthy 
of her forgiveness of him. He is entirely at her mercy. And there it is. It's only if she finds in herself the ability to absorb the pain and grief and hurt and then choose to forgive in a way that brings full restoration. It's only if she, out of the grace that's in her, chooses to forgive that there can be that restoration. He is entirely at her mercy. There's nothing he can do to earn that grace, earn that forgiveness. Are you with me? Well, here's the thing. David discovered that truth. David discovered that truth through the experience, perhaps in the Psalm 51, but perhaps even before that, Psalm 32, with blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. David discovered the truth that the way that you get reconciled with God is by being honest about your own ugliness, your own sin, and recognising that as you come to God, your only hope Helpless that you are before him. Your only hope is the goodness of his love. The grace and mercy that emerges from his unfailing love. That's your only hope in him, not yourself. And that's the place David sat in. Sinner though he is, you look at Psalm 69, he's very aware as he calls down judgment upon others that he is himself unworthy of grace. But that's what makes it grace. And brothers and sisters, if I can say to you very strongly that until you sense this helplessness, helplessness before God, you will not understand the Christian faith. Until you can find in yourself the honesty to see that before God you have no worth to claim upon him. You will not understand the Christian message. Whilst ever you imagine that somehow he ought to forgive you, you've not understood Christianity. This is why the New Testament is so full of the wonder and astonishment. Not that God judges. There's no wonder there. There's no astonishment that God judges. He ought to. The New Testament is full of the wonder that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the very essence of the Christian faith is that our only hope is in the character of God as gracious, as loving, as generous, as merciful. Not in us. And that in the end is what separates the two figures of Psalm 109. David, sinner though he is, threw himself honestly on the mercy of God. Recognised that if God chose not to show mercy, he was worthy to be judged. But he threw himself on the mercy of God and found it. Whereas the other figure of Psalm 109 only had cursing had pride, would not come honestly before this God and plead for his grace and kindness. For us today, can I urge you to see the kindness and the severity of God? Do not imagine 
that one day everything will just be okay. There will be judgment, there will be heaven, there will be hell. And the only way to actually find yourself in a relationship with God is through the honesty that recognises, I've got a life that's full of pride and anger and hurt and hostility. That's part of who I am. I'm so sorry for it. Please forgive me. But thank you that you sent Jesus. You paid such a cost to make it possible for those that throw themselves on your mercy to be forgiven. There is the essence of Christianity. So the lessons for us, it's not a prayer that's just an automatic prayer that you pray. No, no, we give good to those who do evil. But you do learn about honesty, being real, bring everything to God. He's strong, he can cope. And that's the place you can process things. Secondly, judgment's necessary. Third, there's grace to be found in the midst of it because of the loving kindness of God. Pray you know that. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us learn deeply the lessons of Psalm 109, that we might learn deeply the lessons of your kindness and your severity your love and your holiness, that we might flee to you and take great care in our life with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.